Thank you, worship team, and good morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, get used to going there. Uh, we will be in this uh, series for a spell. Um, I trust that you will bring your Bibles, if at all possible. If not, use the Bibles here, it'd be page 923, and if not that, use a tablet or a, a phone or something, so that as we go through 1 Corinthians, months from now you'll be able to say, I read and studied 1 Corinthians. You didn't just hear someone talk about it, but you were a part of this study. We're looking at the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians 1 today. So how do you help a friend who you know is struggling spiritually? How do you help them when you know that actually the reason they're struggling is because of some poor choices, bad attitudes, they have made some real mistakes, they're going in the wrong direction, immaturity, whatever it might be. Because on one hand you know that their problem is sin issues. They have to address sin issues. But on the other hand, you know how demotivating it is if you just come and point out this is what you're doing wrong. That dilemma is essentially what Paul is facing as he writes this letter to the Corinthian church that we studied beginning today. Many of the Christians in Corinth were struggling uh, with immaturity issues. They couldn't get along with each other. They weren't living morally, some of them. There were marriage problems. There seemed to be kind of a, a persistent problem with pride that keeps cropping up in, in every area. We'll see it even in the next couple of weeks of our study. How would the Holy Spirit, who's inspiring this book through Paul, how would, how would he lead Paul to get on the right track in this substantial letter which would be a hard letter to write. What we find in these opening verses, 1, 2, and 3, is that God directed him to go back to the reason God saved the Corinthian believers in the first place. Why does God save us? He saved us so that we could be holy. Verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, or to be saints, some of your Bibles will say, or God's holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you read the Bible fairly regularly and have read many of Paul's letters, you might kind of skim past this sometimes, like some of those assignments at school, kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, got it, yada, yada, hello, Corinth. It's more than that. First of all, uh, Paul himself chooses words carefully, and we can be sure that the Holy Spirit inspiring these words never inspired Scripture haphazardly. Paul speaks first of his calling, called to be an apostle, and then in verse 2, of their calling, called to be holy. The word called is basically to be summoned. I, I, I want you. So come here, I want you. 
And then the word apostle is, I want you to come here because I am going to send you. The word apostle is sent one. I keep calling you, Paul, and now I'm sending you. This is establishing Paul's authority to write some of these very difficult things in this important book. Uh, in fact, it says that he's called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He, he's not bragging about his authority. He's just simply saying, I want you guys to know that Jesus Christ told me to tell you what I'm, what I'm about to tell you. So our creator, your savior, my savior is the one who told me. So if you've got a problem with something I tell you, just know that Jesus told me to tell you this. I'm an apostle sent. An apostle is uh, someone, a spiritual leader of the day in that early first century church who had unique authority. They were the ones authorized to actually perform miracles and to hear directly from God, speak directly word for word from God to write scripture. It's a very important gift in the absence of a New Testament. It was still being written, right? So I'm an apostle by the will of God. It's God's will that I leads you as I do. Spiritual leadership of all kinds is a calling, but also thus a weight of responsibility. Uh, Paul felt it. Pastor Nate and I feel it. Elders feel it. I couldn't do this if I didn't feel called to. I'm, I'm, I'm humbled by the, by the opportunity and the privilege, but it's also a weight to bear. And uh, you need to realize that, particularly dads, that's a spiritual leadership responsibility. Husbands, spiritual leadership. So he says, I I'm doing this. God has called me, sent me to you. And uh, by the way, I'm here with our brother Sosthenes. Our brother. If he says our brother, obviously, not only does Paul know them, know him, but he knows that they know him. He's our Brother, And that kind of uh, introduces us or, or can uh, direct us to tell the story of how Paul got to know the Corinthians and come to, at some point, four or five years later, write this epistle. So let's do a little bit of a quick geographical summary. And in the process, we'll find out, I think, who Sosthenes is to the Corinthians and to Paul. So geographically... Uh, Paul goes to Corinth on his second missionary journey. He had been in some of those early areas. Antioch is like the home base of Paul's missionary journeys. And so he starts out going to revisit those first churches, but then he goes around the Aegean Sea to get to places like Thessalonica and Berea and uh, eventually to Athens. And that brings him to Corinth. And in Corinth, uh, Paul parks for a while because he's actually going to spend 18 months, a year and a half, in the city of Corinth, which is actually uh, the second most time that he spends anywhere. Only Ephesus did he ever spend more time on his missionary journeys. Let's think about Corinth uh, right there, zooming in on a little bit. Um, Corinth is a significant, was a significant uh, port city, had water, actually there probably were like three different ports, so a lot of business. Merchants were coming from all nations. Many nationalities uh, kind of came and landed there and established themselves there to make money, and they made lots of it. Uh, the population is estimated at that time to have been about 750,000, which is a huge city by ancient uh, standards. And so it is big, 
It is wealthy, and it is a sinful, immoral city. Uh, I think we all realize that sin and immorality seems to flourish where there is a lot of money and a lot of people. And in fact, in, uh, in, Roman, in the Roman Empire, when, they, when someone put on a play or a, uh, like a theater production, and if there were Corinthians in it, they were usually cast as drunkards. And um, there was a word in the Greek language to Corinthianize. Corinthianize meant uh, to engage in prostitution. There was a hill outside of Corinth with a temple to the goddess Aphrodite called the goddess of love, used in the sense of lust. The temple was famous for employing a thousand prostitutes for uh, free use of visitors to the temple. It was a popular but evil satanic religion. Satan's plan of immorality still works really well for him. Uh, with the wholesale access to pornography online, immorality in songs and entertainment, we really do live in modern Corinth. How do you stay holy when surrounded by that which is unholy? Interestingly, the title of an evil Grammy award-winning song you might have heard, Unholy. God said, I want a holy church right there in the middle of all that unholiness. That was God's plan. And so I've called you to be holy is the point. And the point of this letter is, guys, you're, you're floundering in holiness, and that's the whole reason God put you here. Continuing with the story of the beginning of the church in Corinth. The story is, by the way, in Acts 18, and I'm going to summarize parts of it and uh, re, uh, show parts of it. But basically, when Paul got to the city, he met, providentially, a Christian couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who also had just come there from, actually, another place, from the city, capital city of Rome. And it says that the emperor Claudius had expelled Jews from Rome. And so that included many Christians because most of the Christians in Rome or any of the early churches were actually Jewish. So there was whatever dispute, some say it was because of a dispute spiritually between believing and unbelieving Jews. We don't know in Rome, but they got expelled. And so Aquila and Priscilla land in Rome and Paul, I mean in Corinth, and Paul lands in Corinth and they meet each other. Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers by trade and by providence of God again. That's exactly what Paul had been trained in. And so Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla set up shop as tent makers, leather workers of some kind. And in the calling of God, then Paul began to go around and preach the gospel. But he began, as he usually did, in the Jewish synagogues. There were Jewish synagogues really in every city of the Roman Empire, dispersed providentially by God, right? All over the, nation, all over the, the, the empire. And so he'd start there because they at least had the scriptures and understood the Old Testament scriptures. But as was normally the case, they, the Jews resisted this message because here was Paul, a Jew, who came to them and said, okay, your Old Testament is finished and completed and, and, and completely fulfilled through Christ. And Jesus, who died in Jerusalem, rose again. He fulfilled all those promises. You need to believe in Jesus. You can see there's a little bit of difficulty in accepting a brand new message like that. 
But there was this spiritual battle, and usually the Jews said, no, I don't want it. I don't want to believe that. And things got bad enough that Paul, in kind of the act of transition, took off his outer cloak and shook it and said, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to the Gentiles. And where he went actually was next door to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a Gentile. But here's the beautiful irony. He goes next door to preach the gospel instead of the synagogue. And guess who follows him is Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, who believed the gospel. He and all of his household. So Crispus is out as ruler of the synagogue because he got saved. And then Acts 18 adds, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized, Jews and Gentiles. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you. He felt like they would, but God said no, because I have many people in this city. Unholy city, I got many people that I want to be holy in this unholy city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. It was a phenomenal start, an amazing promise. No one will harm you, but that doesn't mean they wouldn't oppose you. Because actually the next thing that happens is these same Jews, where he had already left them, the same Jews took him to court trying to establish that Paul is teaching an illegal religion, going to the, to the public courts. A new judge, Gallio, had just arrived from Rome, and Gallio responded by basically saying, I'm not taking the case. It's a dispute among you Jews with your religion, and it's not my problem. So the proconsul Gallio says, I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes. We just met him in the first verse, right? Sosthenes. They turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern, whatever. He says, not my problem. So who is Sosthenes? Well, he's evidently the new ruler that took over because Crispus got saved. And he's the one who is leading the legal team who is accusing Paul of an illegal religion. But now here we are four or five years later, and we're meeting a guy named Sosthenes who is with Paul as a ministry partner. So Sosthenes is only mentioned, that name is only twice in the New Testament, both in connection to Paul and Corinth. It's got to be the same guy. But you know what that tells us? That after being beaten by the Gentiles, and what's happening is that the Gentiles, Jews, they don't like each other anyhow, and so because the, the ruling went against the Jews, the Gentiles take advantage of it and say, let's beat up this Jew who brought these charges. He takes a beating when he's a, the accuser of Paul. But somewhere in that last next four and a half years, if it's the same guy, if we're right about that, he gets saved too. I love it. The first Jewish synagogue ruler gets saved, Crispus, replaced by Sosthenes. He hates the gospel, but at some point he gets saved as well. Because God says, I got many people here. And some of them will be even these Jewish leaders. He becomes a ministry partner. And so when Paul is in Ephesus four or five years later writing this important letter, he says, I'm here with our brother, Sosthenes. Don't ever give up praying for 
and sharing Christ with anyone God puts on your heart, even or especially your enemies spiritually, because of the power of the gospel and the power of prayer. Pray for your enemies. Pray they get saved. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Who's that? We often use it, I think rightly, to put in our own name, right? God so loved Sid. God so loved you and me. Put in the name of the people who hate Christianity the most, who irk you and who rile you up. And say, God so loved them. It changes your heart. Don't hate those who God so loved. God so loved the world. The power of the gospel. Pray for your enemies. Sosthenes seems to be exhibit A of this kind of dynamic that God's about all the time. An enemy of the gospel becomes a worker of the gospel. It's perfect. Verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth. Church is a word that means assembly of people like we're doing here this morning. Church is a term that means people that actually get together and interact and relate to one another about Christ. The assembly of God in Corinth. So having your name on a list, maybe as a member someplace, does not make you part of the church. But if you are actually gathering and in relationships around Christ with other believers, that is what a church is and does. To the church of God in Corinth, to those, and here's, here's where it gets like to the core. You, you can start to see Paul's whole heart for this entire letter he's about to write. Because he says, I see you this way. The church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. He's actually in that phrase using the word holy twice because sanctify and holy are the same words. Sanctify is the verb and holy is a noun. It's the same term. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. So let's start with that word holy. The word holy is simply unique, different, separate. So when we say that God is holy, it is that he is absolutely holy and different than everything and everybody else. Now we know that part of that is that he does not have sin, but holiness is more than just the absence of sin, it's the presence of perfection. And so God says, the holy God has sanctified you. Here's something interesting though. He is using the word holy, first of all, in the past tense. It's already happened. To those Already sanctified. It's past tense grammatically. You are already holy if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sins. Already it's done. In fact, more than that, this term to be sanctified is not only past tense, but grammatically it's something called the passive mode, which means that somebody else did it to you. You were made holy by someone. God made you holy. You didn't become holy because you were so good. God declared you holy. This is past tense, once for all, holiness that God has stamped on your account in heaven because you put your faith in Christ. The examples are all over the New Testament. Acts 20, an inheritance among all those who are sanctified already. Done deal. Acts 26, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, 
That's that's, uh, Paul quoting what Jesus told him. 1 Corinthians 6, we'll come to this one. And this is what some of you were, context is greed, immoral, but you were washed, you were, past tense, already completed, you were sanctified. It's gone, it's past. And 2 Corinthians 5 doesn't use this term, but here's this exact concept. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, by faith in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is past, behold, the new has come. When you put your faith in Christ, your guilt is gone in heaven. Your sin debt is erased. Your count in heaven is stamped holy. Revelation 21 says that your name is written in the book of life. In Sharpie. You, you can't erase it. That's past tense sanctification. You are already made holy. But in the very same phrase, the very next term is called to be holy. So you are sanctified, that's like a dot. And now you're called to be holy, that's the line that follows the dot. So since you have been declared holy, he says you have been called, summoned, be made holy continually, present tense. Also, throughout the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 4, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, present tense, ongoing, that you should avoid sexual immorality. This is like the the classic example of unholy is sexual immorality. Every form. 2 Timothy 1, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. We have this awareness of God. We have this righteous fear, this awesome respect for a God who is perfect and say, I need to be more like that. But it's a process of becoming more holy. Or 1 Peter 1.5, as Pastor Nate read earlier, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. So there's no contradiction between past tense holiness, that's the the point at which you believed, permanently stamped in heaven, but an ongoing process. So sanctification is first of all your status. You have been made holy, that's a status, but then it becomes a process. Kind of like marriage. At your wedding, you are as married as you will ever be because your status is now permanent, you are married, but growing in marriage, that's a process. (laughs) Becoming, you know, healthy and and sacrificial and loving, that is something you learn in a process. So there's always going to be a tension between who we are already in heaven and who we still are in process. That's normal. But what Paul is saying here is it needs to become normal that you are growing in your holiness. So he says, i got to address some issues that are going on in your life. When Paul wrote this, it's four or five years later after he spent that year and a half with them, establishing them. He is, he is in, in Ephesus. It's kind of, kind of pictured geographically where he is. <clears throat> this is now his third missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, he's going to visit all these places, and you'll see eventually he's going to get to Corinth again, over there. But he, he, he pauses in Ephesus. It becomes a teaching center 
from which he is discipling people. For example, the guy who started the church in Colossae was probably trained during those two or three years. So he paused. He's in Ephesus for a while. But with all that's on Paul's mind about the churches and training people and you know, all that stuff, he has three visitors come from Corinth. Their names are in the very last chapter, almost the last verses. Uh, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus. They come and they visit Paul in Ephesus. says, here's how the church is doing. I got a picture of Paul going like, really? All this stuff is going on? Yeah. And it's probably these same three representatives from Corinth who take the letter back. Eventually Paul's going to get get there and visit himself. They said, I got to send this letter and address some of these issues. I imagine him writing kind of with with tears because he's talking about how there's conflict in the church. That'll be the next couple, that next week actually. Division, pride. I'm a follower of so and so. There's a case of incest. There's Christians who are suing each other. Christians visiting prostitutes. Communion itself, the, the meal they share becomes a selfish, arrogant uh, fiasco. In chapter 5, verse 2, sadly, some in the church actually were flaunting how good it was that they were so open and affirming to the immoral people there in their church, just to borrow the modern term, which basically means to approve that which God calls perverse. And Paul pleads, no, we're called to be holy. God put us in this city to be holy. But the Christians in Corinth had become more like Corinth than like Christ. And the sinful world around us desperately needs somebody to reflect the holiness of Christ. We're his plan. Who else? If not us, who? Who is going to demonstrate holiness if it's not believers who are called to be holy? So, You guys in Corinth, you're called to be holy together with all who everywhere call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So this is not our exclusive truth, of course. I'm not picking on you, nor am I, but to think of it more positively, nor am I saying you're the only special ones. God has special, unique, holy instruments everywhere the church goes. And 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, it's us in Fort Washington, all everywhere called to be holy, God's holy people. We represent the holiness of Christ. So wherever you work, be grateful that you can be holy wherever you live. Whatever family reunion you go to, you are called to be holy. So we have to understand that Paul says this in deep love. He, he, uh, he spent that year and a half, he got to know them, love them, wrote them three letters. There's actually another letter that Paul wrote uh, that was between First and Second Corinthians, not in our Bible, nor meant to be evidently, but it's alluded to in chapter 5, verse 9. Visited them at least three times. And while in Ephesus these years, as he hears about it and writes to them, I, I imagine he's been thinking and praying and uh, grieving at times and uh, losing sleep over the church at Corinth. He desperately wants to help his friends with their sin struggles. But he realized I've got to first of all take them back to who they are and show them the bigger plan of God is that God has this entire globe of which he is sovereignly in control. And in his sovereignty, 
he allows sin and unholiness to proliferate. And we can't understand it sometimes, and we think that, you know, that we have to stop all of this, and God in his plan has said, no, this isn't the time I'm stopping it yet. Though sometimes he'll, he'll natural consequences and stuff happens, yeah. But this isn't the time to st- that I'm stopping it. This isn't the time I'm judging it. Read the book of Revelation. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to judge it. But this is the time in which I am calling my people to be my holy representatives in a very unholy uh, Corinth or America. If not us, who? So, verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's like the most traditional uh, thing that he does say, but he always means it. Uh, it's a uniquely Christian greeting. And there was a word that sounded almost the same in the Greek language for rejoice, karen, but he says charis, grace. Grace to you, because everything we have flows from the grace of God. We bring God nothing. He gives us everything. We don't deserve heaven or anything else. Grace to you. I pray that you would be saturated with the grace of God and rest in the peace of God. This is the Greek way of, the Greek, way of uh, Greek version of the Hebrew word shalom greeting. Peace. Peace. But this isn't just peace, you know, guys, have a happy day. Uh, this is peace in our Lord Jesus Christ, probably alluding to the fact that, uh, like you told the Romans, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So he's holy, we're not, yet there's peace because of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm just praying that these truths of God's grace and God's peace just, just fill you because that is where you will find hope in your struggle with sin, to be holy in an unholy world. And with that on his heart, knowing that there are relational sins, internal purity issues, attitude sins, he says, guys, take a deep breath, because I want to tell you, you have everything you need to be able to become more holy. Verses 4 through 9. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. So, uh, first of all, I'm grateful for you because you are God's special people. You have been saved by his grace. I thank God for you. It's personal. He knows them. He can like, visualize their faces as he writes. Many have noted, I think it's kind of an obvious thing, that he doesn't include some of the affirmations that he has in some of the other letters, like, because I've heard of your faith and your hope and your love. He doesn't say that. Probably because they're not doing really well at faith, hope, and love. He's going to address it in chapter 13. Now abide faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. But it, it, it wouldn't quite be honest to say, hey, I've heard of your faith, hope, and love, when actually what he's heard is their disunity and their, their sin problems. Okay? But he says, nonetheless, I can be truly, honestly grateful for you because you are recipients of the grace of God. He, he, Paul is just a picture here of how God sees his sinning, sinning kids. As parents, there's, there's nothing that ever really changes our love for and grace for our kids, no matter what maybe difficult phase they're going through, no matter what ugly water goes under the bridge, we have amazing capacity as parents to see them through eyes of grace, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Paul says, I give you the benefit of the doubt that God's grace has saved you, and he's going to, we'll see, keep working in you. And to bring up grace is is kind of to lay the foundation 
of, of really the rest of the book, but maybe especially the rest of chapter 1 and 2, because every time you think of grace, you have to think of humility. Because grace means we didn't deserve or merit a thing. And part of their problem was they kept taking credit for stuff. They were boasting about, I'm, I'm better than you. It's just kind of a ugly part of pride where we just kind of this one-upmanship kind of thing. We'll see, it, we'll see it next week. So there's nothing to boast about here except your relationship to Jesus Christ. So having laid the foundation, I thank God that he's given you his grace. You are saved by grace. You live in grace. Now verses 5, 6, and 7, he says, and I'm going to affirm something in you. It's that you have all the spiritual gifts you need. It's a it's a, a wise, almost shrewd way of bringing up what was going to become a very difficult subject in, verses, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, the, the issue of spiritual gifts and how spiritual gifts that are meant to be God's blessing to us had actually become a problem in the church of Corinth. And he doesn't shy away from it, but he wisely brings it up in these opening verses and says this, For in him, in Christ, you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking or utterance, and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. By using the terms speaking or utterance or knowledge, he is actually like pinpointing the spiritual gifts that had become a problem in Corinth. He, it, it's the spectacular, the, what we sometimes call the sign gifts, like tongues and prophecy, that were clearly still present in that day. But he says, I affirm that, yep, you've got those gifts. Chapter 12 and 14 especially says, I'll tell you why it's a problem, because you're trying to use it to flaunt how, how great you are. But he says, it's good. These are blessings from God. But then he adds this in verse 7. And you don't lack any spiritual gift. So it's not just those couple of things that people are kind of using to, to brag about themselves, but you have all the spiritual gifts. And the reason you have the spectacular gifts, verse 5, is why? Verse 6, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, which becomes a significant thing, that the reason God gave these special miraculous gifts, tongues and doing miracles and all that, was to confirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a miraculous way to demonstrate the power of the gospel. So that's all good, he says. But they aren't about the gifts being great in themselves. It's because they confirm the gospel of Christ. That's what's great, and that's who's great, is Jesus Christ. So there's so much kind of happening you know, beneath the surface, between the lines almost, but yet he's saying it. And he has this incredible wisdom from the Spirit of God to affirm them for the very things that he said, I've got to actually talk to you about. And you don't lack any spiritual gift. So realize as you're focusing on some, <coughs> that all the gifts are great. And we think of the gifts in uh, Romans 12. That, that, I mean, you couldn't do church without serving, teaching, encouragement, giving, showing mercy, leadership. So just, just so you know, you have all the spiritual gifts. Every believer in this room, if you've put your faith in Christ, you have a spiritual gift which is a special capacity to serve God. It, it's, I, I hesitate almost to use this term, but it's like your spiritual superpower, okay? God can do anything for anybody, but there are some things he especially uses you for because of some serving, teaching, encouragement, giving, mercy, something. And he says, I want you just to make sure that you, 
you plug in with all of those gifts as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. That's a reference to Christ coming back in the rapture. He'll actually talk about that in chapter 15. But when he says, as you wait for Jesus to come back, he is acknowledging that life has an expiration date. And as a church family, we have soberly been reminded through recent painful losses that life is terminal. Heaven's forever. And that should not discourage us, but it should awaken us to realize that we only have what's left of this life to engage our spiritual gifts until Christ is revealed. There's a there's a literal deadline to life. Don't dread it. Don't fear it. In fact, eagerly wait for it. Just make sure that you don't get distracted by what? Petty divisions, uh, sin that's ruining your life. <laughs> don't get distracted by that stuff because you only have till Christ comes back and engage your gifts full throttle till then. Verse 8 is a thrilling promise of God that takes them back, I think, to the issue of you have been sanctified. Verse 8, he will confirm you. Some of you have to be strong or, or sustain you. I like the word confirm. It's a legal term. He will confirm you strong or something to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've already seen the past tense salvation. When we put our faith in Christ, we're declared holy. Now he says, we talked about be holy, becoming holy, but there's another dot at the other end. That's the end of our life. And when we get to the end of our life, everything that was undone, we become blameless at that time. So he says, this is guaranteed. You are declared holy. And this is guaranteed at the end. You will be confirmed blameless at the end. The implication is like obvious. Are you seriously going to flounder around and play with sin? in the line between the two dots of holiness in your life. And so with kind of that stark contrast, we're going to be really blameless at the end, yeah? I better get engaged in the process of being made holy. And if you feel like, ah, but it's so hard. Verse 9, God who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful. So the reason you can pursue holiness is only one reason. It's because God in his faithfulness. He started a work. He's going to complete the work. Do you think he's going to neglect our life in between? Not at all. So the reason we can engage and take on the spiritual challenges and battles is not because we can fix what happened in the past, or blame somebody else, or this is the reason that. But we can grow in holiness because God, who called you into, his, into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Don't think about what isn't. Think about what is. God is working in you. The word faithful means trustworthy. God is trustworthy. You can trust his, 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 his power. He's, he's committed to it. He's guaranteed it. He's not going to give up on you. Because he called you into fellowship with his son Jesus. 
You are, fellowship always means relationship, and relationship always means you have something in common. Every relationship means you have something in common, even if it's because you're both in the same elevator at the same time. I mean, there's something in common for you to have any conversation with anybody is that you, you have a relationship. So how does God, who is holy, have a relationship with us who are sinful? Through Jesus Christ, who is both his son, and you see this in verse 9, our Lord. That's what, we have Jesus in common with God. Because Jesus is God's son eternally, and he's our Lord and Savior. That's why we can be related to God. It's through Jesus. We have, we have Jesus in common. So we've got this relationship with him. We've got an account in heaven that's been cleared, guiltless. We have spiritual gifts that enables us to engage in the process of becoming holy and helping others to become holy. So let's commit ourselves to pursue holiness because of his faithfulness. It's much like what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Basically, a combination of verses 8 and 9. The day of Christ Jesus, he's coming back. I'm confident of this. He began a good work in you. He began a good work in me. This, this is how you help your friend. This is how you pray for your, your child. This is how you pray for your, 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 your spouse. I, I love the statement of Philippians 1.6 because when you, you want to help somebody that's struggling and you, you pray that God would you be, just be faithful in his or her life. And sometimes the person needing that is ourselves, right? We know where we are falling short. We ought to know that God is relentless, committed to our growth, and he will use any circumstance to make us more holy. Some pleasant, many painful. But even think back to your most re recent regret. Was that wasted in this process? No. Because there's to be a remorse that leads to repentance and transformation. And the Holy Spirit works and uses even your latest regret because God has guaranteed and is faithful to work his plan in you. Don't make it more painful than it has to be. That's Paul's plea in 1 Corinthians. You've got to stop this. You're making the process so painful. You can't hardly enjoy the Holy Spirit living within you because you've been resisting him so much. Enjoy the process because God will be faithful to work on you and as you care for others to work on them that they would grow in holiness because God is faithful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we admit we don't really grasp holiness and never can fully in this state of unholiness that we live we live in process. But may we eagerly await our uh, arrival in the perfectness of your presence and pursue whatever you have laid before us as the next spiritual challenge. May we never be discouraged thinking that we can't change when you have in fact given us everything we need to become holy, to be more like you. 
It doesn't depend upon us and our ability, but upon your faithfulness. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.